let's center our thoughts um, towards the beginning of chapter 1, Matthew uh, 1. In the middle of verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This was done so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying... Now, we've been looking at the veracity of God's word. Uh, We looked at the revelation of God in the creation, but far supreme to that is his word, and we've seen it from a few angles. And we began to go down this road really last week when we looked at how it was transmitted faithfully and how it was historically accurate, that it interprets history uh, perfectly, and all the details in the Bible uh, can be verified as according with what we see in history, and also that the word has stayed the same. It's been preserved in its form, and it's lasted all of this time. And as you know, it's all over the world now. There is no more printed book than the Bible itself. All of that testifies to us how unique um, the Bible is, and it especially testifies to it that it's of divine uh, origin. But as we've looked at these characteristics of God's word as we focused on Psalm 19, really. Um, as we consider it as a subject, uh, we, all, we obviously have to consider Christ. Um, because as we think of reasons to believe and looking at what God has said and being able to verify it, um, there is uh, nothing so central to God's written revelation as the Lord Jesus Christ himself The Bible centers around him. It speaks often of him. Remarkably, not only during and after his life, but before he even took to himself his human nature and was born, the Bible speaks frequently of him. And that's a testimony to the divine origin of this thing we have here that we read and that we have in our homes This is not the writings of men. This is written down record of things God said to man since the beginning of time. And as we are astounded each time he tells us something hundreds of years before it took place, it testifies to us again and again that these things were set in stone long before they happened. And God not only knew about them, it's not that God knew they were going to happen, He planned that they would happen and therefore said that they would happen. And so we look really at the the characteristic of the word of God, that it is prophetic. And the whole thing centers around a prophetic um, promise that there would be a coming Savior, a Messiah, and that human history would center around him. Now, most folk here are followers of Christ and know this well. And you know that his birth and death especially are extremely important events. And what we see here is that they're given in detail even before they happen. God does that to just silence man 
and just to give another level of veracity to his word that cannot be argued with. He said in the Old Testament, when people were arguing about prophecies happening, he said in the Old Testament, when there were false prophets, he said to them um, that when someone makes a prediction and it doesn't happen, that means they're a false prophet and they should never be listened to again. But if it does happen, they are a prophet. And that is no, there is nowhere in Scripture that that's more true than in all of the areas that it speaks so clearly of Christ. And we have to just accept that as we go into it and look at it, that God spoke these things about his birth and death and that they have come to pass. So we'll look briefly this morning at his birth. We may touch on it again next week. And the following week we'll look at how his death was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. And hopefully that will complete our understanding of all these uh, characteristics of God's word. And just note that um, the truths of Jesus Christ and the theology around it, these were not things that evolved over time and were built up. It's not that um, Isaiah said one thing and then Micah said another thing. And as these things were claimed, people began to build a kind of picture and then they concluded I think God's promising a Messiah. It's not something that could have just arrived through men's imagination putting it together. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that there will be a Messiah. And that's at least 4,000 BC. From the very beginning, the entire revelation of God and all of his work among mankind is all centered around that first gospel promise. And it's in Genesis 3.15. It's on the the front of your bulletin where it tells us um, when God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So it's not something that developed later on. It's not that the Jews became fanciful and developed this idea of the Messiah. That's what Islam has done. Islam is a late religion, 600 AD. Muhammad is a late prophet, and he obviously isn't a true prophet. But people believe the writings of Muhammad, but they are not verified by history because if God was going to speak in that way, why did it not happen until 600 AD? What we have in the Jewish Christian scriptures is from the very beginning in a way that Adam and Eve could not imagine. From the very beginning, a seed was promised that would crush the works of the devil. So this is not something that develops later. The expectation of this is pregnant there at the very beginning of the thing. And it remains there and grows and is given more and more detail as each generation goes on and on until by the time Christ is born, there's, there's a very detailed picture of who this person was to be. And I think in Matthew's account, if we root our thoughts in Matthew's account of uh, this event, I think uh, there are words that sum this up uh, perfectly, and they're in verse 22. This was all done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord. It's those words. All of the details of his birth that Matthew records and Luke records, they tell us all this was done 
that it might be fulfilled. In other words, it was promised and detailed before it happened, and this is simply the fulfillment of detail we already have. Luke puts it this way, this was prepared, Simeon says in Luke, to Jesus' parents. This was prepared. This salvation was prepared long ago. And then he says to them, as he blesses the baby, he says, this child is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. So that's what's going on here. This event fulfills something. This event was prepared long ago, and it was already appointed by God. Um, What then is being fulfilled? What was prepared by God? And as we come at it the same way again as Christians who give a defense and a reason for the hope that's in us, or we come to it skeptically, saying, I'm not sure if this is true, I'm not sure if I can lay my, put my whole life upon this, we have to see that when Matthew says something has been fulfilled here, this thing that's been fulfilled is exact and detailed, and it confounds our expectations and our, our analysis. And we have to conclude, as we look at the details, that only God could have predicted this with so much detail, and therefore it is true. It is true. So, what is being fulfilled here in the coming and the birth of Christ? Well, first of all, there's the date of his birth. And Matthew's careful to record when this uh, takes place. If you look at verses 1 to 17 there, we didn't read that. There is the genealogy that you try to read in your daily devotions And when you're finished, you say, how does that help my soul? Well, Matthew puts this here to connect Christ to David, but to also give a time period in which all of these things took place. So Matthew doesn't begin his gospel and say, a long time ago, in a land far away, there was a child called Jesus, and he did miracles, and he has saved us. He roots this in history, and he gives who all of the ancestors of Christ were, and he mentions in verse 17, from the generations of Abraham to David, there are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon, there are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ, another 14 generations. So he's neatly dividing those up, and he's giving symmetry to it, and he's saying there's a flow here from God. He's accomplishing something from Abraham to David to Babylon and now to Christ. God is in charge of this, and it is exactly detailed. It involves real people, real families, and real historical events. But there's more to it than that, because marvelously, and some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but Daniel prophesied exactly when Christ would come. And Daniel was in Babylon when he prophesied that. So that's a reference there to the captivity until Christ, or 14 generations. Daniel prophesied this. Daniel knew the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And when Daniel was in Babylon, and the people of God had hoped for their Messiah and hoped to spread the glory of Israel over the whole earth, 
due to their unfaithfulness, they were crushed in Babylon as a chastisement from God. And God sometimes does that to the church. They were crushed. And their hopes were lost. Their temple was destroyed. And it looked... It, it looked like they could never recover from it. Isaiah says that the, the tree of Israel and the house of David was cut down to a stump violently. It's dead. The glory of Israel and its temple and its families and its priesthood and its sacrifices. Nebuchadnezzar came in and the whole thing was just cut down to a stump. And the royal household ended. Those kings were evil. Those last four kings of Judah, they were vassals for Nebuchadnezzar. And they were pagan, and the way they treated the people of God and their attitude to the temple, it was so disgusting that God destroyed the whole thing. It was so corrupt, he just cut it off. And Daniel, as a young man of 17, had been taken in that captivity to Babylon, and he knew all this had happened. He heard reports coming from home, coming from Israel and Judah, that the temple was gone, and that the sacrifices were gone, The priests were killed. The royal family had their eyes put out and had been taken into captivity to Nebuchadnezzar and the sons had been slaughtered in front of the father king. Daniel sees all this happen. How unsettling for someone like Daniel who believes the promises of God and who sees the church falling into such disarray. But he, do you know what he does? He receives a copy of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem. He saw the whole thing happen. And Jeremiah prophesied 70 years. This will go on for until you return. They thought it may be longer. Some of them thought it would be shorter. God will only keep us here for six months. He's not serious about judging us. Different responses to that time period. But Jeremiah said it would be 70 years. And Daniel looked at the prophecy And he determined from Jeremiah's prophecy, this will last for 70 years. And Daniel was a lot older when he realized that. It was just a few years to go. And Daniel prays a great prayer of repentance in chapter 9. His focus is on getting back to the temple. It's not on the Messiah. It's getting back to the temple and that the people would be cleansed. But something remarkable happens when Daniel is praying for the end of the 70 years. An angel is sent to him. And which angel is it? It's actually Gabriel himself that is sent. I think that's correct. Gabriel was definitely sent to Daniel. We'll maybe look at that next week. But an angel was sent. Yeah, it is. Daniel 8, verse 16. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And when Daniel is given this prophecy, in Daniel 9, verse 24... He is told to rise above this idea of going back within 70 years to Israel. And God gives him a greater promise than the temple or the city. And what's the greater promise? Of the one who would fulfill all this. The one who would make sure there was no need of a temple. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 70 sevens, it says in the Hebrew. So Daniel's praying, bring us back to Jerusalem. Let the 70 years be over. And Gabriel appears to him and says, 70 years? No, think of this. In 77s, the city will be complete and transgression will be finished. 
God will make an end of sins and make reconciliation for iniquity and seal up vision and prophecy and know therefore and understand that from this point until then, when Jerusalem is restored until Messiah the Prince, there shall be this time period. That's what Gabriel says to Daniel. Daniel's praying, bring us back to Jerusalem. Gabriel says to him, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be finished. The temple will be folded up. God sees history And you are 500, 600 years looking into the distance. But I tell you, it's not 70 years you should be concerned about, but 70 times 7. And the 7 there is a 7-year sabbatical period. So if you take a 7-year period, as Daniel sees it, and Gabriel says, multiply that by 70, it gives you 490 years, and that lands you immediately into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was given exactly. God gives his most exact prophecy in Scripture, and he gives it to Daniel. And Daniel wrote that, and the Jews from that point on knew that there was this period. And that is why, during the time when Christ was conceived and during his lifetime, there was this dramatic increase in an interest in the coming of the Messiah. It hadn't been there before, but during this period, they're obsessed with it. Why is that? They understood the prophet Daniel. God said, God didn't say one day there'll be a general Messiah who will, he can look like anything and be born at any time and you fill in the details yourself. He said there will be Messiah, the prince, and he will be born in a period in 490 years, the perfect 70 the Jewish perfect number, the number of completion and fulfillment. And that lands us into the life of Christ. That's why Herod is obsessed with this. And he goes to the scribes, when will the Messiah be born? Where will he be born? And they have the answers to these questions because they're discussing it all the time. By the time Jesus and John the Baptist grow up, they're asking everyone, are you the Messiah? The moment that there's a dramatic preaching or sign, they say, are you the Messiah? There's this dramatic increase in a focus upon it. And that is because Daniel told us exactly when it would happen. And uh, Matthew knows this. So Matthew finishes his genealogy and says, From the captivity until the Christ are 14 generations. He says there's 14 generations between Christ and his father Joseph and that captivity connects it to the captivity. So when Matthew says this all happened that it might be fulfilled, there was something clear being fulfilled here. A date, a date. And the date is so significant, the period is so significant, and it is clearly in God's plan to fulfill this in Jesus Christ that he actually accompanies it with an astronomical sign. It's such a great event. And the clockwork of God's history and prophecy is mirrored by the clockwork that happens in the sky and in the heavens. He accompanies it. Now, God didn't often do that. Matthew isn't making this up. The Magi aren't making this up. They look at the stars all of the time in chapter 2. They're from the east. They may be Babylonian themselves. Isn't that interesting? How would a Babylonian Magi know to come and look for Christ? Because of the prophecy of Daniel. 
These men, their job was to look at the stars. They're not easily fooled. And they see something that is extremely unusual. God accompanies this unusually detailed prophecy with an unusual astronomical event. Now, there may be many things that um, are connected uh, to that. Um, There may be ways that we can explain um, the fact that that took place. Um, It could be a miracle. It could be uh, we believe in miracles. God could have easily just displayed a light. They call it a star here. It's obviously not a star, an actual star that's billions of light years away, and it's moving around uh, above uh, Bethlehem. When they say star, they're saying there's something shining in the sky that looks like a star. That's what they're saying. could be a planet. And that's what's interesting about it, because people have looked at this, and there are unusual things that are rare that happen in the sky that would create brightness that is very unusual that people would note. And one of them is a, a conjunction between the planet Venus and Jupiter. Now, these planets, we see them, and sometimes we think they're stars. The difference is the stars actually twinkle because they're burning. And you know you're looking at a planet because it doesn't twinkle. It might be the same size, but it's just a small light that doesn't twinkle. And sometimes you can see it. I'm sure some of you have seen Mars, seen Jupiter. Mars, uh, Venus, sorry, and Jupiter pass each other often in the night sky. So it looks like two stars uh, coming together. And that's just because of the angle we're at in the solar system. And they often pass quite close. It happened in 2012. It happened in the 1990s. But they never cover each other. They're just near, and it's very unique, so people make a big fuss about that, and they go out and photograph it, because they're quite near, and that's quite unusual. But what we've worked out from our understanding now is that in 3 BC, the year we believe Christ was born, they didn't just pass close to each other, they actually looked like they touched. And the brightness from those two planets coming together would have been extremely unusual. And that thing that happens always happens near the horizon. If it happens during the day, you can't see it. So it always happens just before or after sunrise. And just for a short time, they can be seen each day, and they burn really brightly. That may be what this is here. That may be, because when you look even at something like that as the earth spins, sometimes it looks like the star changes course. Um, We're going round the sun like this, and so are the other planets. And sometimes we're nearer the sun, so we overtake the other planets. And the way that looks to us, looking at the sky, is you see Jupiter moving along the sky for a couple of months. Then all of a sudden it stops. Because we've overtaken it, and then it looks like it's moving back, and then it does it again and again. Now, if you put all that together, you could see how God would use something like this, a highly unusual event where the star looks like it's stopping, and it's low in the horizon, and it's seen from the east, and they can actually follow it. They can just go for where that star leads them and and use that as their guide. Now, I'm giving you that because the Bible is intelligent 
that God does use the physical creation and his word. And I want to give you things to work with. I'm not saying that's what happened. It may have been a miracle. I'm not willing to say what it was. But I'm telling you that this isn't myth. That that it's not the case that someone wrote a nice story about a star over a stable. That's not what happened. These were extremely intelligent astronomers. Very experienced mathematicians and scientists. And they, I, I do know this, they were extremely interested in this star. In this sight. And it led them all the way from the east to actually go to Israel to inquire about it. They actually say, where is the one who's born king? They think it's connected to a king. And it may be that they knew of Daniel's prophecy and they knew that this king would be the king of the Jews. But anyway, when Matthew says, this all happened that it might be fulfilled, in verse 22, the date And the precision of God's prediction is exact. There is a date being fulfilled here. It didn't just happen and then be interpreted afterwards by zealous Christians. The Jews expected this to happen and it did happen because Daniel prophesied that it would. So there's the date. But there's also another fulfillment and that's the nature of the birth. All this would be fulfilled that was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. And he focuses on Isaiah and says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. A highly unique prophecy that tells us 700 years before the event, it predicts, that not only would someone special be born, but that he would be supernaturally born, and that he would be born to a virgin, which is what the word means in the Old Testament. Not just a young woman, but a woman who wasn't married yet and who had not known a man. That is a highly unique prophecy. A fulfillment of God's will that was then given to Isaiah and accurately recorded. And Matthew immediately makes the connection that this person would come and be conceived in a womb of a woman that had not known a man, which is impossible naturally. And this is another verification for us of the truthfulness of Scripture. You remember that first promise in Genesis that I read to you. What did God say to Satan? I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And he says in that verse, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman. Now that's Maybe you've just accepted that in the past. Let me just give you the reference, because it's not on the sheet there. I don't think it's there. I think I've written it down wrong. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So I'm paraphrasing there. Um, But it clearly is the seed of uh, the woman. It's Eve's seed. So God doesn't say it's Adam's seed that will crush the head of the serpent. He says it's Eve's seed. Now, we read that and we accept it as Christians, but think, think about why it says that. It's actually very unusual and it's not what you would expect. In a Jewish culture, it's always the seed of the man. Abraham's seed, Isaac's seed, Jacob's seed, David's seed. It's always the the husband whose line is, is recorded. But at the very beginning of the Bible, Eve fell first. Then Adam fell. And God put his chastisement upon Eve. But he gives her the greatest promise. And he tells us that it's her seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And I think the reason for that is clear, that it's telling us there that when we think about Christ's coming, when we think about the promised Messiah, we should think about it particularly being connected to a woman and not a man. That we shouldn't think of it that Christ is just coming from Adam because when he's conceived in Mary's womb, he doesn't come from a man. And that is the fulfillment of that. It is her seed that defeats Satan, not his. And that's true. Joseph had nothing to do with it. It is Mary's seed that crushes Satan and gives us forgiveness of sins. And what a a shock this must have been to Mary. What what a, a wonderful situation as we look at it, and uh, there's so much mystery involved in it, it, it is wonderful to look at. This young woman who's engaged, and perhaps you usually think of it that she's not expecting anything, and this happens out of the blue, but Mary is clearly an extremely spiritual young woman who is extremely close to God. We can tell that because... Um, when it's all confirmed for her and she gives a, an exclamation of her praise to God, she quotes scripture from memory better than most of us could. She quotes Hannah's prayer. There's parts of the Psalms. and She knows the Old Testament, this young woman. So God doesn't choose a random woman here. He chooses a prayerful, faithful young woman who is faithful to God and who knows the word and is hoping for a Messiah herself. It's interesting that when she praises God for her conception, she quotes Hannah's prayer. Hannah couldn't have children. And Hannah wept a lot because of the fact that she couldn't have children. And Hannah was promised that a seed and a king would come from her. And Mary's reading all that. And as she is thinking about these things, Mary's a meditative person. We shouldn't be afraid to say these things. I know this has all been abused. The Catholic Church has abused this, but we're told about Mary that every time God gives her something, she laid it up in her heart and she considered it very carefully. She was quite quiet, but there was a lot going on in her mind and heart. This was someone who knew scripture and who was very receptive to God. And she is told here, you're going to conceive, and she does conceive. And how does that happen? How is that a fulfillment of Isaiah? What happens is that it's God with us. What happens in her womb 
is that rather than the seed of the man providing salvation, it's the receptive, um, passive seed of the woman that is there in her, which is fallen and corrupt, like it is for every woman, but that the Holy Spirit acts upon that seed and changes it so that it becomes sinless, so that it doesn't transmit sin. And there is no genetic material from the man. That is all supplied by the Holy Spirit. She needs all the chromosomes and the genes, and they're not there. The Holy Spirit creates them and supplies them. What was it Luke said? That Mary, Mary heard that um, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you in your womb, Luke tells us in chapter 1. That's, a, that's almost like the original creation picture where the Spirit hovers on the waters. Here he's hovering in Mary's womb. And he takes the egg and he changes it and then he creates a, a genetic code he creates the genes of the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his DNA material and what his soul will be in this body. And in the mystery, which I cannot explain, the mystery of that conception, the Lord Jesus Christ's soul, mind, and body are completed within that womb. And the angel tells Mary, this is a holy thing. It's sinless. The conceived person is sinless inside the sinner, but he's untouched, and the sin has not been transmitted uh, to him. What a wonderful miracle. And Isaiah said it, the virgin shall be with child. And here she is, and this isn't a myth. This isn't an Arabian or Islamic myth. Mary is shocked. Joseph thinks she's committed adultery. And he almost divorces her. And she tells him, an angel came and said I would conceive this way. And although Joseph loved Mary and probably wanted to believe her, there's something in him that just can't accept this. So much so that God has to appear to Joseph in a dream and tell Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, verse 20. That which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. In her womb, this person is formed and the divine and human nature of Christ are perfectly forged together and they are knitted together as one, but they do not mix, they do not become one thing. What you have in her womb is an eternal person infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, infinite in magnitude and immensity and glory, that person in his divine nature has a physical human nature and soul created, and they are put together like this in Mary's womb, but they're not mixed. So what you have meeting in Mary's womb is the divine uh, nature of God, the second person, and the human nature that's now being created to him. And they're put together in a union, not just at that time, but forever. He still has that union. That is what is prophesied 
that the virgin shall be with child. How can a virgin be with child unless God has something to do with it? And what's described here is this immense miracle and union that is needful for our salvation. He shall save his people from their sins. My sins can't be forgiven unless this person is divine, but they can't be forgiven unless he's human. I can't have eternal life unless this person has everlasting life. But I can't have everlasting life unless this person has a soul and body that can die. I can't trust this person or rely on them eternally unless they are God. But I can't relate to this person unless he's just like me also. And it all happens in Mary's womb. So the date of this event was prophesied and it is fulfilled in this event, and the nature of the conception and the birth is fulfilled in this event, all predicted hundreds of years before they actually happened. Also, the place is prophesied. Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel commanded him, took to him a wife, And he did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The place. God doesn't just say, this is when it will happen. He doesn't say, only this is how it will happen. He says, this is where it will happen. And this is another remarkable evidence of the divine mind that wrote this book that we trust in. They weren't from Bethlehem. They didn't live in Bethlehem. She didn't conceive in Bethlehem. They were forced to Bethlehem because Joseph's ancestors were from Bethlehem. We're told here that the, the, uh, the angel says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, he's a descendant of David. Luke tells us that there is a census. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, there's a census that Quirinius oversaw and that Herod wanted to happen that may have been for people to swear an oath of allegiance to the emperor. And the requirement was that they all went to where they were originally from and where their family heritage was to make it easier to register them all. And remarkably, we've found documents since then of other censuses in Judea and in the Roman Empire that say exactly that. I was looking at some of them this week. It's remarkable. Other censuses that all command the citizens to return to their hometown and where their parents and grandparents are from, exactly as Luke records in chapter 2. Luke is the best historian who has ever lived. Everything he says is exact and detailed and can be trusted. This census forces Mary and Joseph immediately after they found out they're going to have this child. It forces them to travel a long distance from the north in Galilee in Nazareth to go down to right just south of Jerusalem to a tiny town called Bethlehem that wasn't notable. We think Bethlehem's famous. It wasn't then. It was known as the place that David happened to be born But it wasn't a big place or an important place at all. And yet they were forced to go there. Forced to go there probably when she was, what, six months pregnant, seven months pregnant, maybe eight. And they're forced there um, so that Joseph can deal with the census. 
and you, you know the account that all these people arrive for the census. It's hard to get everyone good rooms and good places to stay. We don't know exactly where they stayed. The traditional picture of them in a barn and things like that isn't said in scripture. It could be a room or a stone uh, room or a stone cave or a, a less than uh, exquisite wooden extension onto someone's house. We just don't know. We do know it says he was laid in a manger in a trough. So th- that did happen. Uh, but we just don't know. Maybe Some people think they stayed with people that were related to Joseph. Uh, but there were so many people in the house that there was just... There was no good rooms for them to stay in, so they went into this kind of less um, appropriate room. We just don't know. But they go to Bethlehem, and they're forced there, um, and remarkably, they're fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. God told us, and God told the Jews, and they knew this. Chapter 2, verse 6, he quotes Micah, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers Uh, of Israel. Uh, But out of you shall come the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a clear, a Jew wouldn't argue with this. That's a clear messianic prophecy. It's clear. They know that that's describing the Messiah and the king that is to come. And remarkably, it's all fulfilled in this forcing two people from Nazareth to go to Bethlehem for a time and for him uh, to be born uh, there. Now Micah wrote that 700 years before this event. And we, there's no point arguing uh, with it. The Jews didn't argue it when Jesus was alive and living in this world. He went to Jerusalem and many people said, this is the Messiah. And they asked where he was born and they assumed it was Nazareth. And we've got a record in John's Gospel that the Sanhedrin said, he can't be the Messiah. We know the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. This was accepted Jewish theology when Jesus was alive. It was unquestioned. He would be a descendant of David and he would be born in the hometown of David and he would do for us what David did for Israel. He would be the great David again and we haven't had one since and we need a new David. And they saw Jesus and they said, he's from Nazareth, he's scum, he, he wasn't born in Bethlehem, he's a blasphemer, he can't be the Messiah. If they just asked, they would have found out he was born in Bethlehem. And here's the record of it. God's accuracy being clearly demonstrated again. No myth, my friend. The period of life, the kind of birth and conception it would be, and the place that it would happen, clearly known at the time, clearly understood by the Jews, and prophesied exactly 700 years before uh, he was born. So you have the, the date, you have the nature of the birth, and you have the place. You also have the royalty of the birth, which was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, he told Joseph. The Magi say in chapter 2, verse 2, who is, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? born to peasants, born in a small town that David was from, 
in obscurity. His parents were nothing special in terms of their natural jobs and all these things. They weren't politicians. But they are both descendants of David. Joseph and Mary are both descendants of David, as their genealogies prove. They are a royal family. That didn't matter in the day they lived. They couldn't go into stores and things like that and say, we're related to David. No one cared because the Davidic throne had been cut down, as I said at the beginning of the sermon. Herod was king. And people who were related to David stood no chance of just being treated differently. David's household was cut down in Babylon and it was gone. But here these two are descendants from David. The mother is told, you will give birth to someone who is divine. And you will give birth to someone who from your genetic material will be a descendant of David. And that means he is a king. And the Old Testament said he would be a king. Numbers chapter uh, chapter 24. A star shall arise out of Jacob. And he will be a king uh, to God's people. Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he said that a descendant of Judah will be Shiloh. He shall bring peace and he will have a scepter in Judah and he shall be king. Both of those are over a thousand years before the birth. Micah says that he will be a king 700 years before the birth. Daniel says he will be the son of man who will come before the ancient of days and receive a kingdom that will never end and will cover the whole earth 500 years before Christ was born. And then the Psalms too. All of the Psalms, Psalm 21, Psalm 45, uh, Psalm 98, all these Psalms that clearly speak of the coming of Christ and so many of them clearly say he will be a king. And they were all written by David. Do you see how it all fits together? All these psalms written by David for us to sing. And we say, why do we sing the psalms? Because who better to write about the son of David than David himself? And David knew this king would come and supersede him. God told him that. I will put someone on your throne, David, whose kingdom will last forever. And you shall never fail to have a king on the throne of Israel. David knew once Solomon, with all his potential, crash-landed in immorality, David knew this is speaking about someone else. This is someone to come. This is the seed. All these prophecies, hundreds and thousands of years before this event, say that the one who will be born at this time and the one who will be born in a virgin womb and the one who will be born in Bethlehem will be the king of kings. He will be a divine king. And his kingdom will never end. So they are told all of this and they go to Bethlehem. And the Magi know something about this. We can't get into it. But they know that there's a king being born. They go to find him. They're guided there. They don't know which town to go to. They ask the scribes, where is the Christ to be born? And the, the answer is clear, in Bethlehem of Judea. So they go there and they find him. Now, this is months after the birth. They didn't arrive two days after the birth. He's been born. You can compare the accounts in your own time. He's been born. 
Uh, Mary and Joseph find accommodation in Bethlehem, and they're actually beginning to settle there. Joseph does not want to go back to Nazareth. She got pregnant before they were married. He does not want to go back to Nazareth. They're in Bethlehem, and they're thinking about staying in Bethlehem. And after a few months, these Magi finally appear, and Mary and Joseph marvel at what these Magi do. And they give him gifts um, and all of these things. And Herod knows that this is a threat. And Herod's a megalomaniac. He knows this is a threat, and he tries to trick them into giving up the location, and you know the rest. He had to be safe. He had all the children who were about that age killed. It's not thousands. It's not hundreds. This is a small town, maybe 15 or 20 children about that age were killed. And they are warned to leave there to protect uh, Jesus. So all of these things are fulfilled. And lastly, what is fulfilled is that this would affect the Gentiles. Another unexpected uh, prophecy, another unexpected element uh, of, of what God has done here. The Magi themselves are Gentiles. Why are they worshipping a Jewish king? They have their own kings. and they have the, Why are these people coming to the, the Jews who were despised? Why are they coming to worship this king? Isaiah told us. Isaiah told us in those wonderful prophecies that he gave 700 years before. Isaiah tells us exactly. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. You know the passage. And it says that the Gentiles will seek him. At the beginning of Isaiah 9, it says this. The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. There you have the very, Isaiah says there's going to be a Jewish king born, but then he immediately says the main effect will be a light to the Gentiles. He doesn't even mention the people of Israel. And that is exactly what happens here. In this early chapter, it's the Magi, who first acknowledge the Son of God. It's not the Jews, it's the Magi, it's the Gentiles. And as Jesus goes out in his ministry, a great light dawns on the Gentiles. And who can deny this? That the Jewish king has mainly been received by the Gentiles. For 2,000 years, millions of people have acknowledged this kingship. And the prophecy of Isaiah has come true. Now, how do you explain that, my, my skeptic friend? How do you... Explain that. That a man living in Jerusalem in 800 BC, think about that. He, he tells us that around this time a Jew will be born and the whole of the Gentile world will end up following him and establishing a religion in his name. How could Isaiah know that? He couldn't know it. It's not predictable. It's impossible 
to predict. And yet it is predicted. That's what's happened. He came. His own people rejected him. And here we are. Gentiles. Worshipping this person. This is the prophetic word. It has been exactly prophesied. It has been exactly fulfilled. And we have to abandon all ideas about this saviour and child like it's a cute story that makes us feel warm and fuzzy at this time of the year. This is God exact. And he tells us it will happen, it does happen, and it lays a huge obligation on us. This child condemns us. He will save his people from their sins. But the holiness of this person and the nature of this person and the mission of this person doesn't come to make us feel nice and cute. He comes because we are sinners. And when we look at this person, we are all sinners looking at the only person who is not sinful. You better be reverent when you think about the birth of this person. He grows up to be a warrior. He grows up to be a king. And he takes his iron rod and he smashes the nations. That's who this is. This child is not only to be looked at with warm feeling, but with awe and with careful consideration as to what it means for us. And I just want to leave you with this. We're going to see more about it next week. But I want to leave you with this. If you are skeptical about this, you cannot escape this son. You cannot escape this son. Your justification or condemnation hangs upon this son. And I just want to leave you with this. You say, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't believe in this. You do believe in this. Every time you write your date of birth, you are making a fool of yourself. Every time you say, this is not real, it didn't affect the world, and this never happened, and I don't need to deal with it, every time you write your date of birth, you are confessing that the only significance you have is at what point you were born after him. That is how immense he is. He's born to peasants in a small town and the whole of the Western world calculates every single historical event from how distant it is to this one. Every inauguration, every birthday, every beginning at university, every marriage certificate, when you get your driver's license, every time you show it, to prove who you are, you are saying to the world, I was born after Jesus Christ. He is the king, and he makes sure his witness is there. Don't think that we've effaced Christ out of the Western world. We haven't. 
All of us write about him and speak about him every day, even if we won't confess his name. Every time we write a date, we are showing how insignificant we are and how significant he is. The next time you write your date of birth, turn to Matthew 1 and 2. May God bless his word to us.